The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're with us and glad that you would join us this morning as we uh, worship together and as we come to God's Word. And if you are new to us, uh, you're joining us in the midst of a sermon series that really has been going on for, uh, well, I guess about four or five years now because uh, every summer we've been returning to the Psalms. And this morning uh, we are continuing in that series. We're not going uh, from Psalm 1 all through 150, kind of going in order, but jumping around. And this morning we're going to look at Psalm 108. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there to Psalm 108. There are also Bibles in the chairs in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen. In just a moment we'll be projecting it. Now Psalm 108 is a Psalm of David, and Psalm 108 is a lament Psalm. Now, this is not unique to the Psalter um, because the laments are the most prominent genre in all of the Psalms. There are more lament Psalms than there are Psalms of joy or psalm, historical Psalms or messianic or royal or, or uh, Psalms of thanksgiving. This is the most prominent genre, that of lament. And it's the most prominent of David's Psalms. There are 71, 72 Psalms that are attributed to David in the titles, and 41 of them are lament. So David lamented a lot. <laughs> but what is unique about this particular Psalm, Psalm 108, is that it actually smashes two Psalms together to give us the current form that we have. So some of you maybe like singing competitions, reality competitions, and you've seen that the, the artists, sometimes these competitors, they have to take a song from like one, one time in history and another song from another time, and they mash them together and they make them into one song, and it, sometimes it's really good and sometimes it's really awkward, right? But, but that's kind of what David's doing here. You see, every verse in Psalm 108 is actually borrowed from two other psalms. The first is Psalm 57. Psalm 57 verses 7 through 11 make up verses 1 through 5 of our current psalm. And then Psalm 60 verses 5 through 12 make up the remainder of Psalm 108, verses, uh, 13, excuse me, verses 6 through 13. And so what David is doing is he's actually taking two psalms, two laments that he already wrote, that he wrote for particular times, particular occasions in his life. He's taking portions of those two psalms and now combining them together to give us this single psalm for the sake of Israel. Because this isn't just an individual lament, this is a communal lament. It's all of God's people together would be joining together to cry out, to call out to the Lord. And so David writes this. Psalm 108, a song, a psalm of David. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth that your beloved ones may be delivered. 
Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. Moab is, a wash, is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us in this time. For Father, we acknowledge as we come to your word, we are in need of you. Apart from your work in our lives, our hearts would remain hard and our eyes would remain darkened. But by your spirit and your work, you open our eyes and you soften our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that again so we would see the wonder of your glory, that we would know what it means to be your people and we would follow you in all of our ways. So meet with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the most famous lines in American film history is a line that comes from Apollo 13, right? It's the line that probably I don't even have to say aloud because as soon as I said Apollo 13, your minds probably went to it, right? It's Houston, we have a problem. Exactly, right? This is a line that we all know because we saw the movie and we love it and Tom Hanks delivers it so perfectly, right? And it's become part of our common vernacular in, in our world. Like when the Strohs aren't doing very well, Houston, they have a problem, right? Like this is, well, if you like baseball, you would know what I'm talking about. But regardless, it's, it's a line that we're very familiar with and it's perfectly delivered and it's a wonderful line and it's setting up the problem for Apollo 13. You remember if you've seen the movie or if you lived through the events of it that Apollo 13 took off for a trip to the moon, right? This manned mission to the moon. And it was three days out from uh, their, their uh, departure from Earth. They were 200,000 miles away from Earth and as they were traveling towards the moon, their oxygen tank ruptured. And it sent the entire mission, it sent the three men aboard Apollo 13 into great danger, into doom. And then we have Houston, we have a problem. Now that's the most famous line in the movie, but it's actually not my favorite line of the movie. My favorite line comes a little bit after that one. And it comes from a man who's on the ground in Houston, one of the flight commanders. You see, as the men and women were on the ground trying to figure out how it was they were going to get Apollo 13 back to Earth, how they were going to rescue these men from doom, from disaster, well, their own doom, their own worries started to set in. And one of the men at Flight Command, he said this, he said, this could be the worst disaster NASA has ever faced. And surely, as others were looking at the situation and considering what was to come, surely that was a sentiment that many were thinking and feeling. But Gene Kranz, who was the flight director, he spoke up when he heard that this might be the worst disaster NASA has ever faced. He spoke up and he said, my favorite line, with all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. 
You see, in the midst of distress, and when it looked like all that would come would be destruction, would be doom, he was confident that doom would be avoided. He was confident that distress would be resolved. He had confidence. Not because he was on the other side of it, he had confidence even in the expectation that these men would return safely. And it's that kind of confidence that we see in this psalm. We don't actually know the exact circumstances that caused David to smash those other two psalms together, but it's clear from verses 11 through 12 that some battle is ensuing, that the enemy may be pressing in on him, that Israel is facing attack. Now, we don't know exactly which attack this might be because we know that Israel was engulfed in many battles throughout its history, but we do know that David is feeling dread and doom. To the point that he actually says, have you rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. See, David's feeling unsure. And yet, in the midst of this unsurety, he has confidence. Did you hear how the psalm began? My heart is steadfast, O God. Now, what's interesting about this is that in the vast majority of laments, especially Davidic laments, and I've read through every one of them. It is very uncommon for a statement of confidence to come this early in the psalm. You see, if you were to study the Davidic laments, you would see that they form a structure, that a structure starts to come out as you examine them. And oftentimes, the way they begin is with some sort of invocation or a petition. They call out to God to be present. And then they, they uh, make a request, and then the lament, the, the reason for crying out. But it's not until they have cried out that we have a confession of trust and confidence. And then often a word of praise. That the confidence comes at the end after they've moved through the lament. But in this psalm, David begins with confidence. He begins there. And why? Why is it that David can have confidence? Why is it that he can say, my heart is steadfast? Well, it's not because of his own power. It's not because of his own ability. It's not because of his own cunning, right? I mean, I've said this many times throughout the times in the Psalms. David, of all people, as the king, he could have looked to himself. He could have looked to his power, his authority, his position, but that's not where he turns, No, instead, David is a wonderful demonstration to us where our confidence should be. And that's in the Lord. Specifically, it should be in the Lord's character. That's what we see in verses 1 through 4. He says, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. You see, the reason that David is steadfast and he sings and makes melody is because he knows who God is. He knows what it is that God has revealed about himself, that he has steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what verse 4 said. Your steadfast love, it is great. It is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the, cl- to the clouds. You see, before David or Israel are even brought out of their trouble, 
He expresses confidence in the character of God, of what he knows of God. And what does he know? God's steadfast love never fails. That his faithfulness endures. And he knows this because these words are used throughout the Psalms. In fact, this couplet, steadfast love and faithfulness, it's all over the Psalter. In fact, next week, the Psalm that we'll be looking at, it ends with these two words. And so we'll see them again. But, but even before they were written in the Psalter, they were expressed by God himself. You remember in Exodus chapter 34, Moses and God are on the mountaintop and they are talking with one another. And God passes before Moses and he makes a declaration about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now listen, this wasn't an aspirational statement made by God. Like, hey, I'm passing before you, Moses, and this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to be a God of steadfast love. I'm going to be a God. No. No, he had already proved his steadfast love and faithfulness. He had already shown his character. Because before Exodus 34, God had delivered his people out of slavery and rescued them out of Egypt and led them through the sea. God had not forgotten his people because he is faithful. God does not ignore our cries because his steadfast love is great. You see, it is God's character that David is appealing to. Now, before we go on, let me just make one, uh, point out one thing about this. Because we have this language of steadfast in verse 1, and then we have the steadfast love of God in verse 4. Now, those two words there are different. I know it says steadfast and steadfast, but the Hebrew words are different. So David's not sitting there going, well, well, God's steadfast love, it's kind of like my steadfastness. That's not what he's saying. When he invokes the steadfast love of the Lord, he's talking about God's chesed love. If you've been with us in the past few summers, you know that word, chesed. It's that Hebrew word that speaks of God's covenantal, unfailing, never-ending love. It is a love that is unique to God. It is greater than David's steadfastness. And it is this character of who God is that causes David to have confidence and then to confidently declare in verses 5 through 6, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. You see, David knew that God had been faithful to deliver and his love was demonstrated by saving his people. And so he invokes that again for himself. And he sings of God's character. But his song is not just for his own benefit, right? His song is for the benefit of Israel and even the nations. He says in verse 3, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. David is inviting others to share in his confidence. And it's this inviting, this song that you, can, you get the sense he can't contain himself, right? Like he has to just explode into praise. We, we read in verse 2 that he will awaken the dawn. It's almost like he can't wait for morning to come. 
Like, sun, stop slumbering, rise up so we can praise the Lord. Like, that's, that's this kind of buildup that you get that he has in his heart that finally explodes in confident praise of who God is. And it's not just for him, but it's for the nations and for Israel. He's inviting others to share in this confidence. It's as though he's saying peoples and nations... Y'all don't look to other nations for help. Don't look to other peoples. Don't put your confidence in princes and chariots and armies and even in yourself. No, no, his song calls the nations and his song reminds the people where their confidence is to be. In the Lord. He's singing to God, but he's singing for the benefit of others. And y'all, that's actually what our songs do. Not just when we sing the psalms, but the songs that we sing in worship. That as we gather for worship and we sing songs and we sing praise to God for who he is and what he has done, we are singing to him because God is the the central person in our worship. He is the focus of our praise. And when we sing to God, we are also reminding each other who God is and what he has done. I mean, just think about this way. In a few minutes, we're going to sing that wonderful hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And in Be Thou My Vision, there's this uh, great stanza, this great verse. I mean, really, all the verses are great. But, but there's this one. It's the fourth. The author writes, and we will sing, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Now, when we sing these words in a few minutes, we are saying what is true about God. That he is to be first in our hearts. That he is our great treasure. But we are also saying to one another, y'all, don't, don't pursue riches. And don't, don't seek after man's praise. And instead, rest in God's inheritance. Put your trust in this high King of heaven. You see, as we sing these songs and this psalm, what we're doing is we're taking the truth of who God is and we're pressing it down deeper into our hearts. And we do this in worship and through song and through this psalm so that our confidence, even before difficulty or struggle is resolved, our confidence would rest on God's character. But not just God's character. We would have confidence in God's promises. It's where David takes us in verses 7 through 9. He says, God has promised in his holiness, with exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Now, what David is doing here is he's not actually quoting a specific promise. So before the Psalms, you couldn't look in the historical books or some other place in the Old Testament and find the exact language of verses 7 through 9. So David's not quoting an exact promise. Instead, what he is doing is he is picking up on the general promise of God that God will reign over the entire earth. That's what this promise is about. Because we see it in the lands that are mentioned. 
the lands that are mentioned, Shechem, Succoth, Gilead, Manasseh, Ephraim, Judah, these are all parts of Israel. These were all parts of the, the land that was apportioned to Israel and that God gave as he willed. But the other lands, Moab, Edom, and Philistia, these were neighboring lands. But more than that, they were actually inhabited by people who often opposed Israel and made war against God. So take Edom, for instance. That's the focus of verse 10. Edom attacked Israel and made war against them. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 8. But what does David say? What does God say? He cast his shoe upon them. That's kind of an interesting phrase. I, I don't know if I've ever thought, you know, well, I'll cast my shoe at someone, right? Like, maybe that's a culture, you know, like you hit, I, I don't know. But what it's getting at, what we know it's getting at, is that this is a way of God declaring his ownership. He's claiming ownership over Edom. Or Moab. Moab is called his wash basin. Now, the wash basin, its rightful use, is in service of its owner, and so God is saying about Moab, its rightful use is to serve me. Philistia, God shouts triumphantly. He rules over them. What David is declaring is that God's promise is not only to reign and rule over Israel, but even over Israel's enemies. That he will rule and reign and his ways will fill all the earth. That is the promise. Or as Psalm 2 puts it, the nations will be a heritage to God's Son. He will possess the ends of the earth. You see, David has confidence in God's promises. And friends, we too can have confidence in that promise. Because that promise is made to us as well. That promise that Jesus, who is the son of Psalm 2, will rule and reign over the world. Jesus, who before him every knee shall one day bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That is the promise that God has given to us. The promise that was made is now beginning to be fulfilled because Jesus is fulfilling the reign and rule of God over this earth. Because not only did he die, but he rose again. And he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And from there he rules and reigns over all this earth. And he is going to return and he is going to establish his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. That is the promise that has been made to us. That the whole earth will be full of God's glory. That is his promise and that is the promise we can have confidence in. And y'all, it's here where we would expect that God's, this statement of God's promise would end with doxology, right? I mean, that's what we would expect, wouldn't we? I mean, come on, you know, like if this is what the pastor does, right? He, we're going to go high and say amen and go out into the world and we're going to turn away from sin and we're empowered and we're, right? Like, I mean, y'all know me, this is what I do, right? <laughs> But that's not what David did. Did you see what he does? In verses 10 through 11, he writes, after making these amazing declarations about God's character and his promise, he says, who will bring me to the fortified city? And who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. I mean, what? What? 
Y'all, doesn't that feel very out of place? I mean, how can David speak of God's promise to rule and reign over the earth and then question God's rule and reign? It feels very out of place, doesn't it? And yet, it's also something we can very much relate to, can't we? I mean, think about our own experiences. We come to worship on Sunday. We come to worship and we hear God's grace, his kindness, his love. We read his word and we're full of confidence in who he is and his promises. But then we get home. Or we go to the office or we read the news. Or we experience some sort of inner turmoil. And all that confidence seems to blow away. It's gone so quickly, isn't it? In fact, it moves away so quickly, that confidence that, that sometimes it feels like it was just a figment of our imagination, like some part of a dream. It's not reality. And we start to wonder, is God really in this? Is he really at work? Has he abandoned us? Now, let me tell you, it's these sorts of questions it is because of these sorts of questions that I love the Psalms so much. See, this is one of the beauties of the Psalms generally and the laments more specifically because they honestly reflect our experience and they help to reshape our experience around what is true of God. You see, it is this situation of verses 10 through 11 that David has been preparing the entire psalm for. The, the first nine verses have been leading up to this. He has been preparing us for this time so that David is inculcating himself with what is true of God. He has been speaking and singing of God's character and his promise so that in that perplexing situation, in that place of unsurety, he and we would know where to turn. You see, friends, it is too late to start to think about God's character and his promises when the earth feels like it is falling apart, when it is trembling and is crumbling. We need to be thinking about it before that day would ever come. We need to be rooted and grounded in who he is, his faithfulness and steadfast love, so that when the earth shakes and when that turmoil comes, we can be reminded, we can hold to, we can cling to his promise and his character. So that even in the midst of unsurety, we can say with the psalmist, verses 12 and 13, Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly, it is he who will tread down our foes. You see, David has surrounded his difficult situation, his time of unsurety, with confidence. So that even as he is in the midst of his lament, he can say, Vain is the salvation of man. I will not look to the nations. I will like, look to the Lord. I will not look to man or to myself, but to the God in whom I have sung of. Now listen, I don't know where your heart is this morning. Maybe you arrived here this morning and your heart was kind of like verses 1 through 3. You're like up early, awakening the dawn with praise. Maybe that's how you arrived. Full of hope 
confidence and excitement. Maybe that's where you have been, or, or maybe your heart is verse 11, full of unanswered questions and unexplained struggles. Friends, I don't know where your heart is, but what I do know is that wherever you are, we are to put our confidence in the Lord. You see, that's what lament does. That's what it is. It is inviting us to join our voices in calling out in our distress and difficulty, but to call out with confidence. Crying out to the one whose promises endure and whose character is true. Friends, people of God, put your confidence in him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word that leads us in your truth, that shows us why it is that we can have confidence, even in times of difficulty, but also in times of celebration. And so I pray that, that in times of struggle, in times of hurt, in times of joy, and in times of overwhelming praise, that our confidence would always be in you. And so we pray that you would make our hearts steadfast so that we would sing of your character and of your promises. And we pray all this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, amen.